Coach considerations from the UKSCA. Views and opinions from the world of strength and conditioning. Hi there, John Noonan here. A really quick thank you firstly to the UKSCA and in particular Dr. Will Abbott for inviting me to do this session. This was initially part of one of the regional workshops over in the Northwest. Um, but fundamentally, I'm really excited to be here and talking about a topic that I've become really passionate about over the past four years for a few obvious reasons that will become apparent shortly. I think it's fair to say that the concept of self-employment as a promising option for professional strength and conditioning coaches has for quite a long time been somewhat of a taboo topic, at least in larger settings for a number of reasons. But the fact that we're all here and we're having this conversation indicates, I believe, a shift in the conversation about the options available for pro sport strength and conditioning coaches to develop a successful career in strength and conditioning. The objective I've got for us in this session today is firstly to discuss some of the considerations for pro self-employment. I'm going to talk specifically about the obvious differences between employment and self-employment within pro sport and certainly from my own experience. Um, and I'm not going to really talk about the nuances of business and setting up a business and how to run a business. I'm going to initially talk more about the second part here, how to mentally prepare for the jump to self-employment. I work with a lot of coaches privately and this is certainly an area that I think is often missed. So a little bit of a backstory on me, and I'm just going to skip through a few here. Fundamentally, I absolutely love what I do as a coach. And throughout my teens, when I first started um, study at uh, University of Hull, doing an undergrad in sports science in 2004. Prior to that, I'd worked in a number of gyms, which you could see underneath there. And, and, and throughout this journey, even to you know, 2019, when I was working at Everton Football Club, I absolutely love the fact that I was, I was constantly trying to progress, better myself, develop myself. And I really wanted to be an individual that others would want on their team, an asset, a value. I was comfortable very much in the notion that my life was built around my career, shamefully, if I'm honest. Um, and this was until at least my first child arrived in 2017. And instantly I felt a really incredible sense of an overwhelm, if you will, to support, provide and care for and protect my immediate team, being, being my family. And it was as if a switch had flicked in my head and you know overnight the my beloved career went from the primary focus to the primary family's asset and and through that lens I really started to shift and look at and look at how I was kind of bringing value to the table through my career now for the family I think when you when your personal commitments change naturally you do start to scrutinize the fruits of your time and labor and, and so I considered a few at that point a few simple questions how much time do I want to spend with the family how much time do I want, I want to work what do I want the next 10 years of my life to look like, which I'd never asked that question before until then? And what kind of lifestyle am I working towards? Unsurprisingly, the answers that came back were no different from a lot of the murmurs that are echoed in the industry today. I wanted to work a little bit less. I was working full-time um, in football at the time. Uh, and I wanted to earn a little bit more and have a terrific work-life balance. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen that unicorn. I, I certainly haven't either. Um, and I, I've certainly since changed my perspective on that. But at the time, um, before I'd moved to Everton, I was working at rugby league side and I'd moved my family locally to be nearer work. And the job was great, but I'd soon learned that the environment and the club's infrastructure necessarily wasn't, wasn't necessarily there for me. And despite efforts made to challenge and support the people and the culture and, and how I was performing in the role, I made a decision about six months into that role that I would leave. And then I managed to land a position as head of s and at Everton Football Club. And things were great, but about a year in the same questions really came back. 
to haunt me, how much time do I want to work, how much time do I need to work, and what lifestyle am I working towards? And the reality there was that things really hadn't changed much. I was much happier in my work at Everton, but I was still working 60 plus hour weeks, which is the norm, I guess, and longing for a lot more time at home and control of my schedule. At this stage, I'd also realised that all past career decisions were driven largely by the ambition of self-development, career progression, industry credibility, and to some extent, ego. It was a really exciting and, and you know, the role that Everton definitely provided challenge, but rarely sustainable on a personal level, if I was honest. And clearly then, the next move for me, I knew needed to be different and it needed to be, quote unquote, for the family. Personally, I guess when you start a new family, and, and I'm sure many listening on to this can agree in the same position, you, you feel you've got a lot on the line. I had a wife, I just had my first child, uh, and a mortgage with one income at the time to pay and to cover that household. And so feeling the pressure and doubtful on what move I could make that was in line with that, with that supposed vision of balance, I created a framework to, to cross-reference what my next fundamental career move would look like. And, and so in 2019, with that reference, and I'll come on to that quite shortly, I then created Nuna Performance, um, and there's some images there that my face, sadly, I can't move from the, from the corner of this video, but essentially I, I set about the venture to have a performance consulting company that would consult in motorsport, in Formula 2, Formula 3, and, and, and supporting the kind of the next generation of Formula 1 drivers. So some consulting time there, working with individuals on the European tour, uh, the pro squash, squash, if I can say it, tour. And then some other individual elite athletes in, say, Rugby League, Premier League. Um, and I've really lent into my network to, to sort of leverage some opportunities there. But it was very much a decision on my terms, an adventure that felt incredibly exciting with a lot more scope for, for, for progression as well. So coming back to that, that point where I'd said I was frustrated the second time around, um, shortly into my tenure at Everton, and that wasn't because of the environment or the people there, by the way. It was purely because of I knew my um, sort of underpinning frustrations about what I really wanted and the satisfaction of those wants. Many people, when they'll come to me and ask about self-employment, um, for one, I think there's a, there's a lack of information around or a path well trodden, should we say, for employed coaches who have got five to ten years' experience who know and have seen many coaches going and do this. So... And actually, I was, I was no different. Highly sceptical and highly concerned, largely for two fronts. Number one, job security. So I think when you think initially about security of a job, we think about contracts. We think about how that can make us stable, comfortable, perhaps from an earning point of view, a, a consistency point of view. We, we have control. We have familiarity. And secondly, earning enough money. Now, on the latter point, never in the history of business as anyone said or any business said, we just want to earn enough, just enough money. But nonetheless, that was one of my concerns. How am I going to earn enough money? Looked at my overheads. I need to earn this amount of money per year. I need to just earn enough. So if we're honest, there's a lot of quite often emotional driven thinking here and thoughts and largely illogical and irrational um, fueled thoughts. They're largely survival based as comments as well because we fear that we're inadequate, we fear that we don't have the evidence, the skill, the, the knowledge, the know-how to go and do it. We don't have the evidence to lean into that and take confidence from. And so clearly then, we have to set about understanding the clear differences between employed and unemployed. So let's look down the left-hand side of, of our screen first. 
the obvious positives, guarantees to some extent of employment is going to be that we are contracted for a length of time or permanent contract. We have a regular stable salary, a regular place of work. We know the people. Quite often CPD is a part of, or if not personally, is part of that, that journey. We recognise all the benefits to that to that situation, which is holiday allowance, a company pension, a car allowance if you're lucky, health insurance and bonus schemes to boot. They're all great positives. If on the flip side we look at the employment downsides, however, generally speaking, there is a slower rate of, of income per year. Don't get me wrong. We may move to a bigger, better opportunity, which has got a better salary attached to it, more potential upsides financially longer term. That's great. But year on year, the growth, generally speaking, in employed in a particular role does not necessarily lobby higher than um, uh, inflation. Income is absolutely time dependent in that situation as well. We have to be there in brain and body exchanging those qualities to get that income return. We know that there's large amounts of income tax attached to this. We have largely fixed working schedules or flexible ones, but nonetheless, there's a minimum hours that we have to fulfill as a quota. And there is a limited number of holidays per year for which you can take at certain stages of the year, particularly if you work around sporting. Fundamentally, you don't own your time. You have a lack of choice to some extent and limited freedom within your contract. Again, largely based on where you're working, how often you're working and the flexibility within that. If I was to be a little bit more sceptical about this, and obviously you can see I'm building a theme here. If we look over to the left-hand side of the screen again, and we look at things like bonus scheme, health insurance, company car allowance, company pension to some extent, I would almost call those the golden handcuffs as well a little bit. So when we think about how can I make my contract work better for me financially, and this is purely a selfish agenda speaking here from the coach's point of view, Naturally, we look at the positives of that contract and go, well, I get a decent company pension, I get a nice little car allowance, a health insurance, a bonus scheme. I would argue that those are great qualities, but they're also qualities that make us feel stable in that employment situation. However, they are no different to what we can create for ourselves outside of the employee environment. It's just that those qualities are less well-known with which how we set those things up. Of course, there are costs attached to doing that, but the scalability and freedom to do so is far more leverageable, of which I will explain more shortly. If we think about fundamentally how we would go about earning money as a private coach, a self-employed coach, I think what springs to most people's mind straight away is this time for money model. It's arguably the most traditional route for coaches. We have seen for decades personal trainers work in the private sector. They do endless number of hours sessions per week in theory the more time that you give the more money that you can you can get in return the more clients you see the more you can the more money you can bring home from those number of sessions the challenge with this concept and i'm really going to go into this now is that there is a limited potential for your income to grow if we only operate alone through the time for money model and i think this is perhaps one of the the stigmas that surrounds self-employment well do you really necessarily work less time i'm still going to have to exchange a lot of time because I want to earn a large amount of money or a set amount of money, surely that isn't more beneficial to what I'm doing already. And this is where I think there's a real negative understanding around the potential for self-employment and how we can set ourselves up financially and have a good strategy to make some good financial legway into the future. 
The challenge with running an only time for money models, let's say I have a business that only sees people exchange time for money online sessions or in-person sessions, is that it's absolutely time dependent. I need to be there in brain and body. Therefore, I've only got so much time available. Therefore, I can only earn so much money. It's a limited asset, a limited quality. It's health dependent. If I was to fall ill, sick, or an aspect of my work change in somewhat, maybe I can't see all my clients online. Maybe they're not all keen to work with me online. Maybe I'm not as available to work as often as I need to because I need to rest more. I need to take time for my health or my care. That's going to change the situation as well. Of course, that makes you vulnerable if you are self-employed anyway, but not the least. If your income strategy is only time for money, you are under threat. You are a security risk. Thirdly, you are skills dependent. For the most part, as SNC coaches, we're going to be in gyms or private facilities, our own facility if we're lucky enough, and we're going to be coaching. We're going to be exchanging time for money based on our skill set. But again, in those particular sessions, we are absolutely skills dependent. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to speaking to corporate individuals at business breakfasts, working online in a coach support manner remotely, trying to offer services that just exist outside of the SNC bubble. I'm talking about trying to think a little bit broader in the perspective of which we would exchange time for money in our services. We need to be thinking further than just barbells and dumbbells. The bottom line though, is that if you are having only a time for money model, you are still going to be overworked, underpaid, and largely, because of the exchange, feeling undervalued. And this is where I really want to challenge the convention around how self-employment can really leverage not only a work-life balance, a pseudo term, but work-life balance that we so desire, but not least leverage our skill set to the highest possible with which to earn more money financially. I'm going to introduce here this, this quadrant, our income quadrant. In the top corner here, we're all pretty familiar with employment. That's where we've, we've engineered most of our time to return our money. We think about accruing qualifications, accreditations, um, going through our career, leveling up through different employment opportunities. If we only live in this box, we are missing huge amounts of potential, financial potential elsewhere in this model here. Generally speaking, when we get good enough at employment, we may be sought after to become a consultant or we may begin to consult outside of our employed domain and begin to offer skills, knowledge, experience, if we're lucky enough. When you fill up that bucket, naturally, coaches will often start to think about, right, well, how could I earn money when I sleep? I think it's quite a popular um, um, concept, right? Everyone likes the idea of earning money when you sleep. It's incredibly hard to do, and I don't believe there's anything exclusive such as passive income. But nonetheless, it's definitely um, a tasteful idea that's on the table. Maybe we write programs once and we sell it to 10 more or 20 more people. Great, that's a form of passive income. Again, it's another pocket with which we can, we can return our value and our skills. The other, the other piece is that most individuals I speak to, when they've done something in the coaching area, maybe they're employed part-time, they consult on the side of that, and they do some passive things online, they've got their own business online, they may begin then to look at investment. The key take home here for me is that if we want financial freedom, i.e. we want to be earning money that covers our overheads, our liabilities, we need to be looking at how we're spending our time developing our knowledge, but we're developing our um, eligibility to earn money in all of these four quadrants. I 
obviously earn money in all these four quadrants and I make it a very specific and strategic effort to do so. Gone out and sought online resources, read lots of different books. I'm definitely not dabbling in stocks and shares, but I am investing and I have an idea of where that vision will take me longer term financially as well. With which when I'm older, maybe I'm on the gym floor less, but I'm still in doing, doing what I love elsewhere and I'm very fulfilled by that balance. But the key take home I want to really bring to, to Roost here is that if we're thinking alone about living in the top corner employed, we are actively exchanging time for money. We cannot scale our value beyond time for money because we have to be there in brain and body. And fundamentally, we only have so much time. Time, of course, is and will always be our most valuable resource, whether that's we consider the time we spend with friends and family or the time that we spend at work and we exchange time for money. Fundamentally, though, we cannot let this be our cheapest commodity. If you do, then we're no near, nowhere near um, financial freedom. And longer term, we have to rely heavily on things like pensions, with which if we look at the growth of those, it isn't always um, as, as great as it's made up to be. If we also compete on hours, time for money, you compete on price, the average payer will always believe that there is a ceiling, a limit with which they're prepared to exchange for that hour. So which how we dress up that conversation and how we sell our value has to, has to go beyond the time for money concept of which I'm going to talk about a little bit more later on. But if we only compete on price alone in time for money, it is a race to the bottom financially for my mind and my experience. Developing a mentality toward building a business and a brand that really serves you truly, I believe, means that we need to be thinking more or less about and less, sorry, less about financial only and the, and, the, and the bottom end only that we earn every single month or more about life by design. So think less about career ideals and more about life by design. That doesn't mean we're discounting careers and the passion that we have to work in a really fulfilling and really exciting role. But if we're thinking more broadly about life by design, clearly we're going to have some interest here, top left corner with financial freedom. Can I earn money in excess of my outgoings? means we're very comfortable, we have options, we have choice. Top right, maybe we can go on holiday more often than we want to. Money gives us options. Bottom left, if we're good enough, maybe I can consult at a higher level rate. I can, I can scale my value. I can really stretch what I'm worth per hour. Fundamentally, bottom right, we all talk about wanting to spend healthy amounts of time, and it's different for everybody, but healthy amounts of time with family and friends. If we have a life by design concept, we're more likely to be able to achieve all of these four things. I would highly recommend anyone that's looking at setting up business and becoming self-employed that we design business with this in mind. We have purpose beyond the pound. More concerning is that I believe longer term, and certainly this was the same for me coming up in the industry, we look around at really great examples um, and folks that have done this really, really well, had a long-standing career, a very successful career. I've been in the audience at the UKCA and ASA conferences and seen some really high-end presenters working at the top end as head of performance, performance directors at Team Sports and thought, I want a piece of that. If we take the same path, we will get the same results. This brings me to competition. In 2016, admittedly, now 2022, this was a, a little while ago, but in 2016, I think it's still very relevant today, the UK did a survey, and of the 600 respondents, and at the time, you can see the membership count, there was 2,500, so you know, 
there's a, there's a large amount of respondents. It doesn't necessarily represent the entire um, industry, nonetheless, but it is a good number of, of, of uh, respondees, which gave a really good indication of the challenge of competition that we're facing in this industry, industry to be successful. In that, they, they separate and look at the proportions of coaches who were in different age ranges here and the education that was on the table. So the majority of people who answered this um, questionnaire were under 30, and the vast majority of this market had an undergraduate and a postgraduate. Now, with a rise in pro sport jobs, asking for higher professional qualifications, so too we've seen a rise in the total number of universities offering education to a growing number of students. We are academically rich and we provide a high, we pump out a large number of coaches between one and one and a, one and a half thousand per year to be exact with high academic rigor. Since 2004, we've seen an explosion in the total number on the right hand side of your screen are the postgraduate university courses. The upside of this is that we've got a vast number of highly qualified coaches drives up the standard of education and research. But the downside means that we've got a large pool of talent to compete for the jobs in sport. A jobs market which, of course, is not growing at the same rate as the education market, sadly. What this tells us, though, if we look at each one of these little segments, coaches who responded who were in under two years' experience to coaches who were above 15 years' experience, is that you need to be working at least as an employed member of staff for 10 years before you're looking to earn at least £30,000 and above. What this tells us is that patience in the long game reinforces the passion, the enjoyment for what you do is key. Absolutely, that's important. But the limitation of this is that financially, employment, given the bottleneck of this and the amount of, 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 of high quality practitioners available, and there's a bottleneck for earning toward the top, I'm going to argue here that employment is not the only way to earn a really healthy return and income. The take-home message from this, really, is that we've, if we've got a high supply, as this balance shows here top left, of coaches and a lower commensurate demand of growing number of pro sport roles, it's going to mean that we've got an increasing number of coaches happier to take lower paid roles to gather that experience and begin working up the employment ladder. But if 81% of those respondees who have got higher-end certificates and qualifications we need to be thinking more critically about how you're going to stand out against a large majority in the market who have the same. To me, this reinforces the long game. One point here is that what was really interesting about the survey is that up to five years, coaches are still working and earning up to uh, earning sorry twenty thousand pounds. That's a, a, a good amount of money. But still, you have to be getting to the five-year point before we at least could expect to fetch a value of £20,000. I know lots of peers industry, myself included, when I was at university, I had the dizzy, dizzy, probably illogical, irrational concept of earning 30k plus within the first five years. But as this, as this market survey has shown that we need to be working for at least 10 years before we can at least fetch something in the region of £30,000 and above. If we've got up to 1,500 graduates entering the industry every single year, Economics 101 tells us that the value of coaches is driven down. The coach worth is driven down. If you remove the supply, suddenly the value will increase. 
Looking at Eric Cressy's comments here. Value is a perception, not a calculation. Compensation is driven down for many S&C professionals because they don't realise how homogenous their skill set is in relation to the available applicants. Eric goes on to say, he's seen up to 500 resumes per year, which are shockingly similar. This is chronically one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now. If you've got a high supply of coaches without the same growing demand of coach roles available, the market will continue to pay what it feels the service is worth. The value of the coach is driven down by the economics. Perhaps more alarming is that when I did whatever value you place on this, but a small little um, quote, a couple, um, uh, excuse me, a survey a couple of years ago on Twitter of, of at least uh, over 200 people um, came back. The majority of people felt that their biggest limiting factor to landing a role that they want was not the skills and qualifications that they possess, not necessarily lack of experience, although it was quite a high quality. It wasn't that they couldn't sell themselves, but they felt that the size of the competition was one of the largest inhibiting factors. As I want to say on the right-hand side of the screen here, 29% of respondents also didn't have the confidence that knew how to sell themselves, sell their value to an employee or a potential customer. This absolutely was me earlier in my career as well. And of course, developing and leaning into how to communicate, how to convey your value and how to sell your worth is absolutely a skill that takes time to, to develop. But it is the first step in awareness of understanding how we're going to address the problem at large. We are, I think, of course, more familiar these days that there is a more of a diversity within our employment sector for strength and conditioning coaches. We've got pro sport to the left working in general pop in the middle. And then, of course, as you and I are doing right now, there's an increasing demand and a presence, certainly given COVID and how this accelerated it, of working online and providing quality online. There are many examples today that we have a diversity with which many individuals can go on and earn good amounts of money based on doing what they love. What I do believe, however, is in the next decade, we're going to see more pro sport coaches competing in business akin to the competition that we've experienced to date in the pro sport jobs market. I believe that there are more coaches seeing and recognizing the bottleneck squeeze, a saturated amount of coaches in pro sport. Yes, there are more pro sport roles becoming available, but not at the commensurate growth as the education market and the amount of coaches that we're pumping out every single year. It creates a challenge. So when we're thinking about developing a business mindset, we're about to go into self-employment, one of the first things that I'm really, really interested in is this first. It's the person, not the concept that they have, not the product that they're looking to sell, not even the systems that they're looking to run with. It's to know where you're going in business first, you must understand where you are. Have you done the work on you first? Speaking with a lot of coaches who, who have got some ambitions to go it alone, um, many of them, have got great business ideas and concepts that, that sound really brilliant, but they're driven often by the biases. The biases of a lack of clarity for knowing who you want to be, how you want to interact with your client base, what you fundamentally want from your business and the interactions that you have, and what will bring you the greatest meaning. What I mean by that is a failure to do those things and seek the clarity in those questions Often people find themselves in a car that's in front of the horse. If you fundamentally understand what you do, how you want to serve your audience, 
how your business fulfills and satisfies your self-interests, you're going to have a horse before the cart. You're going to be enriched in the experiences that you have. You're going to be highly fulfilled in what you're doing. And you're going to be excited to go to work every single day. Going back to my earlier point, we're chasing purpose versus chasing a pound. For me, working for yourself is not about becoming a passenger to the business, but a leader personally and professionally. As the old adage says, if you can lead yourself, you can lead and help others. Here are some really key questions that I'm often asking individuals when we're talking about what your business concept is. We want to do an introspection into character. We want to be considering things like our mindset, our behaviours, our vulnerability to accept or challenge who we are and what we believe and value. This gives us an accountability to develop and grow as a person. Personally speaking, I lacked a lot of confidence, I think, through many of my early um, roles when I worked as a team sport SNC coach. I'd struggled to articulate my ideas to a group, influence, therefore, behaviour and decisions. I'd gone through a lot of my team sport career thinking that because I was working in teams and I could command and, and, and deliver a decent session, that I was an extrovert. And I, and I would almost, you know, not put a face on it, but I would take on this performer as, I know I've got confidence in my skill set, I'm deliver this to you. Interestingly, I, I actually understand now that I'm a lot older, I understand my character, my values, my mindset, that I'm, I'm more of an introvert. I, I care deeply about people and I do want to work in teams and settings and that really fulfills me. But I often seek a lot of clarity, a lot of confidence from the things that I do as an introvert, things that I do on my own. I had, earlier on in my career, equally, a lot of unfounded beliefs about self-employment and the opportunities that afforded people, as I mentioned already. And I completely disregarded self-employment as an option 20 years, until 20 years into my, into my career. I had values that I would ignore in the face of making other people more comfortable, perhaps specifically around challenging behaviours and actions of others. I didn't hold other people accountable around me sometimes as a leader. But I knew that I wanted to be authentic and passionate. But it wasn't until I was older that I started to have the confidence to challenge others. So I'd really recommend anyone who's thinking about stepping into this space or if you're just looking to get a little bit more informed and support what you do already in employment, that you look to consider these things. Who are you as a person? What are your beliefs? What are your values? And what do you stand for? Put pen to paper on things like your personal relationships, your relationships with money, your relationships with work, relationships with yourself. What makes you happy and how can your business be a vehicle for this? Start here first. Further on from that, there's four key personal qualities that through deliberate self-assessment and critically analysing who you are and working on your blind spots are things that we're arguably not so great at and we don't necessarily lead with as a, as a natural preference. These things for me have really helped. It's considering, yes, I believe I'm growth-minded, but how much do I really lean into that? How self-aware am I about my biases? How do I go about my daily practice? Am I really truly productive or do I get distracted often? Am I measured in how I behave? Do I have a control of how I behave through emotional intelligence and how I interact with others? And how much am I looking at developing my personal mastery, my skill set, my craft, the way that I communicate the things that I'm really passionate about and that I need people to believe in? and buy into. Really, really encourage anyone to start to really think critically about plotting yourself against these four things. Do you have, and are you developing, your competence and confidence in all of these areas? If you're not, highly recommend you begin to do so. It's fundamentally changed the way that I operate on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm thinking more mindfully, more consciously about areas that 
I wasn't arguably confident in before or well developed in before and I'm seeking to take action on these things all the time. I mentioned before about a personal philosophy that I lent into when I was at Everton Football Club and I was thinking about the overwhelm of stepping into self-employment and doing something for the family based on my passion, my purpose and my beliefs. And this is one of the things that I, I lent into. It was a framework of family fulfillment and finance and it kind of went in that order first for me which was that I put family as a first heading right. When I'm thinking about what I want to do next and what I want this thing to be, whatever it was, I had no idea what I was going to do, by the way. How much time do I want to spend with the family? How much time do I want to work? And how much time do I need for me? I was thinking more about balance rather than the pound straight up. doesn't mean finance wasn't important to me, as you'll see that's still on the spectrum here, but it was family first for me. Fulfillment was absolutely front and centre here as well. I absolutely love what I do. I'm incredibly passionate about what I do. I'm a very growth-minded about being a better practitioner, but a better individual at the same time. So if I'm going to go work with people and organizations, who or what inspires me to do my best work? And how do, I, how do I get that more often? What work and projects am I really fundamentally passionate about? Where are my skills best place, my value? And what environments and people align with my values? I mentioned at the start that I was working in an environment that didn't necessarily align with a lot of my values, personally and professionally. And I felt that hurt me. That hurt me as a person. I certainly... I think I suffered mentally a lot through that experience. Lastly, the finance. I think this is an area that often developing and growing coaches um, are a little bit shy from considering. Maybe people see that a little bit differently um, with the rise of generation, generation me. But not least, I was always taught that when you're working and doing the hard yards in pro sport, everyone's doing the same. Get your head down, crack on, get as much experience as possible and if you earn good money, you're very, very lucky. And, and by large, when you're trying to gather lots of experience and get good at your craft, that's very true. But when you're a bit older and you've got commitments, personal commitments, family commitments, I'd, I'd, I don't think that that concept is, is, is suitable anymore. Um, and I think that if we continue to put the business, the career, the situation of the economy in front of our own, you're always going to be playing second fiddle to I'm still struggling for money and we don't, we can't do as many holidays as we want. We can't have the house that we want. We don't have the car, the opportunity to go out and do things with the family or just go out and travel if you're on your own and you want to go out and travel. But for me, it was very much about the family. So I was considering about, right, does this work opportunity that I want to go to pay my worth? Does it pay what I feel I'm worth? That's an interesting question. How do you know what you're worth? Does this opportunity fit with my wealth model, the four areas of earning that I talked about? And does this opportunity move me closer to financial freedom? Don't get me wrong, year one of working for myself, I was taking what I could, by and large. But as this concept, as my brand has developed, I'm thinking specifically about saying no to very specific opportunities and yes to other, or creating other opportunities that I feel align very much with me, my interests, and my financial self-worth. So that for me absolutely became my underpinning philosophy about how I was going to achieve this balance that you see on paper here, time with the family, consulting at high level, travel, holidays, and financial freedom. I'm absolutely still working and getting better at all these four things, by the way. I've not mastered it, and I'm still working at them every single day, but this is my heading. It's my north, and I'm constantly thinking about which block do I need to work harder on next, and how do I develop this so it's, it becomes uh, my masterpiece longer term, if you will. I mentioned a little bit before about Defining your value and considering how you provide value. This 
to me, is the most critical defining factor on our bank balance longer term. Coming back to what Eric Cressy said before, we've got a large number, uh, we've got, sorry, no end of, of, of coaches available to our industry, working general populations, professional populations, with high academic horsepower. A lack of skill, knowledge, is not necessarily our shortcoming here as individuals, but rather our ability to help other individuals see our worth and communicate our worth and communicate that in a manner that's compelling and that's help people that helps people take action, whether that's buying into exercise or that's buying into you as a coach and paying you money as a coach. Fundamentally, I always think about it in these in these terms. We need to read the signals of the market. We need to read the signals of our ideal customers. What problem do they have? And can you speak to them in a manner that provides them with that need, a solution to the said problem? We should be concerning ourselves about positioning our time and our energy on helping the client see that we can serve them based on what we have to offer aligned with a problem that they have and constantly working on the ability to influence behavior of others through our communication. Every single interaction we have is essentially a sale. I believe, therefore, that to sell is to coach and to coach is to sell. The two, the two are absolutely synonymous for me. If we identify the primary outcome, problem, we can then provide them with a suitable need. As this equation shows us here, value is defined by looking at the problem with the need and dividing it by the persons, the individuals that we're looking to influence, their orientation, how they feel about the problem. How important is that problem to them and how we can therefore demonstrate and align our value to this situation. Think about this in, in, in a training concept. We're all very familiar and probably quite comfortable about going to a, um, an athlete or an individual and seeing that, let's say, they lack single leg strength, single leg stability and selling on the idea that, listen, I really think you do better in your running, in your performance on a weekend or how you move through your life if you had a little bit more single leg strength and stability Here's a few examples or ideas of how you could get better at this problem that you have. There's a need to a problem, and then you would divide it by the orientation. You would look at what's their experience, what's their age, what's their athletic qualities, their competencies, what's the right exercise to slip in here based on where they're at. We're constantly thinking about this. It's absolutely the same with what we need to do in business. In business, this is commonly referred to product market fit. We would provide the right product based on the latent issues that the market is having. If you can do that well, you're gonna get high traffic, have lots of conversations with potential clients, and you're gonna sell a lot of your packages or products to those um, ideal clients. A bad example of this is that we walk straight into a gym environment and throw Olympic lifting, not, not bashing Olympic lifting, but throw Olympic lifting at everybody, regardless of their problem, their need, and their experience. That will be a really bad idea. It might go well for some. It will go horribly for others. This is 50% of the problem in business. If you understand this and how to deliver value, you're 50% of the way there. The rest of it is then how you articulate your background, your skill set, your qualities, your character personally, and why that, that person or that individual, that organization needs those things. You're aligning what you have to what they need which means we have to read the signals first of the people we're speaking to. We're speaking in a manner that's congruent with what their problem is. This is really common in business, for example, and anyone who's looked at trying to do 
um, uh, a, a funnel, a sales funnel, excuse me, it's me then, is probably quite familiar with this concept. It, this ADA concept was created in 1981. It's the process of becoming known and landing a client. When we're trying to speak to a client who's never heard of us before, the first step is A. It's to try and create awareness with a client, a potential client. We're helping them understand that we have something they may need and that we can also provide proof, evidence to qualify that, yes, I have said skills and, and background, and I also have got a few case studies here to show you how this has worked before. Sounds very familiar to what we were doing in an interview, right? If you do that well enough, that person then falls into the second part of the funnel. It's, a, it's top to bottom, right? They then start to become interested in what you're about. They start to ask questions. They start to maybe sample something that you have, like a freebie program. Or they say, oh, would you maybe suggest something? And that largely, it's, it's, it's a freebie errand initially. There's a lot of lost leads, as, uh, as one of my other colleagues and mentors would talk about. But it's the willingness to go from someone who doesn't know you to someone who knows you, and now you're looking to provide something as a little win short-term, low-hanging fruit, just a little small win. If you can do that well, generally speaking, the conversation drops deeper into a desire, and we're now expressing a desire to start to work with people. People are asking you questions, not just about what you do and how you do it, but how much you're worth, um, what availability you've got, and when they can book in with you. It takes us to go through that AID steps before we get anyone um, down to taking action. There's a stat out there that Google provide that says basically, and this is across markets, on average, to every 100 people you speak to, only 3% of people are ready to buy from you right now. And they are largely people that have been through the top three levels of that funnel first. They know who you are, They've gathered information about you and they've prepared themselves for the information where they have confidence to go and ask you the question of how much you're worth. Our job, by the way, in conversations is to walk people, not every single time and definitely not the first time you speak to somebody, but walk people through that process, that sales funnel, before you get to the action. This is where things like sales funnels and lead generations are really important for a business to have structure in place with which to constantly be bringing people to the table, lining up your diary and having phone calls with people about you could be my next potential client. We're not coming in cold. It's a warm lead. That's more for another time. But the point I'm getting to here is that what we do in coaching is synonymous with what we're trying to do in business. You already have the skill set. Largely, it's defining your confidence, your awareness, and your ability to make this work for you. Here's four questions I want to leave you with. In defining your value... You need to understand, first of all, what is your best and strongest skill set? We've all got particular individual qualities. Lean hard into that. Consider what's existing in the market and consider why what you have may do business and compete with what's there already. Or how you could do it differently to compete with a different sector or a niche within an audience. What do you do better than anybody else? If you can articulate that in a manner that's um, in line with your ethical moral values and that it's tasteful professional, you're going to get people to take account and take interest in what you're about. What abilities do you possess that someone may wish to invest in? Again, beginning to articulate why what you have matters for the person you're speaking to. Naturally, we have to acquire and gather information about the potential client or customer first. But what, what do you possess that someone may want to invest in align with a problem or issue that they may have? And can you offer a different perspective and a competitive insight to solving that problem for others. So we need to sell ourselves. We need to have unique insights. You need to understand what your most unique uh, strong point is, your skill set is. And then, of course, using our breadth of education, our knowledge behind us to be able to convey 
and translate that into a into a selling conversation. I'm going to leave it there. I hope that was uh, useful, if not least insightful, about some of my background and thoughts about um, the positives of self-employment. Um, I certainly wouldn't look back from the step that I made now four years ago. I'm year four into my business, really enjoying the journey, enjoying the experience and learning all the time. Um, if you have any questions about, about this or anything that's resonated with you in the presentation that you'd like to ask me more about, then please feel free to reach out. Um, that's my email there. And also you can find me across social media using the handle of John Noonan Coach. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, I look forward to speaking with you and meeting you hopefully. And uh, have a great afternoon or great day. Coach Considerations from the UKSCA. Views and opinions from the world of strength and conditioning.